BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Everyone, welcome to Dishing with Digest. I'm Stephanie Sloan, Editorial Director, here with Mara Levinsky, Executive Editor. Hi, everyone. Well, Mara, first of all, big congratulations on your well-deserved promotion. Thank you, um, Steph. It's very exciting. Um, and speaking of exciting, we have some big casting news to share from The Young and the Restless. The show is gearing up for its 50th anniversary on March 26th, and they have big plans to populate Genoa City with some familiar faces. So Michael Damien, who we just saw over the holidays as Danny, will be back for the big celebration. We'll also see Danny's sister, Gina, played by Patty Weaver, who was last on the show 10 years ago. Trisha Cass' Nina will be on hand, as will Victoria Red as the former Abbott housekeeper, Mamie. And soap vet Barbara Crampton will reprise the role of Leanna Love, which she hasn't done since 2007. Now we're also going to see Michelle Morgan, who is on recurring status with the show back as Amanda. And I am so excited about each and every one of these actors coming back. You can see that the show really thought about who could round out storylines for some of our favorites. And I think it's going to be great. Now, I actually spoke with Michelle recently. This was like before she came back, but after she knew she would be coming back for this uh, special occasion. And she was so looking forward to reuniting with her Genoa City pals. And I'm particularly excited to be seeing Patty Weaver and Veronica Red and Barbara Crampton, who have been absent from the canvas for a longer span of time. And for me, really bring back memories of when I first started watching the show. I just love that we have all of these returns to look forward to, and I certainly will be doing that. Uh, on the flip side, however, of the casting spectrum, we have had to say goodbye to Daisy's Lindsay Arnold, who has wrapped her run as Allie Horton. There's an interview with her in the new issue of Soap Opera Digest, where she discusses her decision uh, not to renew her contract. And I totally understand her reasoning, but at the same time, she just, to me, fits so seamlessly into Salem. Uh, and it was great to get to know Lucas and Sammy's daughter as a young woman. And I enjoyed her romance with Chanel, and I will definitely miss her presence. Oh, I will too. You know, I like the casting they've done for Generation Next in Salem. You know, fortunately, there are other offspring of our favorite couples they can focus on. You know, Days has a really terrific stable of young talent, but she will certainly be missed. In keeping with some Days news, Ariane Zucker is marking 25 years since she first debuted as Nicole, which is completely wild to me. So as timing would have it, the Soap Opera Digest Awards that year were also in February, and we had a party the night before the show, and I saw Ari there, and I remember thinking, oh, there she is, the actress who's playing Nicole. But we really hadn't seen much of her on screen yet. And I mean, I could tell you it's like yesterday in my mind's eye. And to think how fully integrated she is on the canvas, you know, despite not having a family member to speak of on it anymore, or frankly, for any long period of time in the past, you know, is really a testament to the actress and what she's done with the role. So congratulations to Ari on such an unbelievably special milestone. You're here. And we are, are celebrating a milestone moment of a different sort. For another daytime actress in the new issue, I got to speak to General Hospital's Tabiana Ali Trina, who recently turned 21, about her star-studded birthday party that her mom had to kind of talk her into having, but she is so glad that she did. Uh, family and friends were there to help her mark the occasion, and among them were her GH co-stars Brooke Kerr, Rael Andrews, Donald Turner, Taj Below, uh, Avery Pohl, and Eden McCoy. She also told me about the amazing way her fans and the Sprina fans in particular spoiled her on her birthday with a whole bunch of goodies. And it meant so much to her because she said that the gifts 
were like so thoughtful and so perfect for her. And it just really touched her that her fans got her, you know, like understood her and what she's into and picked out presents that were so specific uh, to her. You know, it, it, it wasn't that long ago that she didn't have fans because she wasn't on GH and it isn't lost on her how special it is to have so many people in her corner, both in the cast and in the audience. Oh, that's so great. And the photos were so sweet. And Breakfast at Tiffany's, which was her theme, is one of my favorite movies. So yay to her for channeling Audrey Hepburn. Um, now, I had the great pleasure of speaking to our guest today for a feature in the magazine, but I loved her story so much that I asked her to tell it here. It's Bryn Thayer, who fans know as Jenny from One Life to Live, but has done myriad roles since then. So she has a wonderful new project to talk about. So let's get her on the line and hear all about it. Hi, Bryn. Hello. How you doing? I'm great. Great. Glad to be here. Oh, we're so happy you could join us today. Um, and I have already spoken to you, but I am so happy to share your stories now with everybody else because you have wonderful ones to tell. Um, so <laughs> we're going to start that you were born in Texas and your father was a pilot turned executive at TWA who during your time at One Life to Live actually served in the Reagan administration as the deputy secretary of defense. So were the creative and or performing arts something that were emphasized at home when you were growing up? No, uh, we, we did, you know, we did go to events. My, my mom took me to plays, but I never saw that that was something for me. I was more, um, you know, I was a horse, horseback rider, uh, barrel racer. Um, you know, I, I was a Texas kind of tomboy. Uh, so the arts was, was way out there in a dream that I hadn't had yet. So um, horses were my thing. I think it's fair to say the first barrel racer we've had on the podcast. <laughs> I'm so glad. <laughs> Definitely. Well, as the story goes, you were actually a school teacher in Texas before you moved to New York to pursue acting. So at some point that dream was born, right? So did you have an interest in performing that you set aside to pursue a more practical career or were you already teaching when that dream came to be? Still no dream while I was teaching. <laughs> <laughs> um, but maybe I thought, and I still think this about teachers, I think they are the, <laughs> the ultimate performers. I mean, they have a captive audience. They really, if they're a good teacher, they have to engage, they have to entertain, they, and they do all of these things that for, you know, 30 kids at a time, um, uh, you know, it was definitely the hardest job I have ever had. Uh, my goddaughter now is a teacher and, uh, you know, teaching these days, a lot different than teaching when I was uh, teaching. But, wow, what a what a tough um, sacrificing type job uh, for all those teachers out there. Uh, I, I, I loved it because I loved being around, you know, the, the kids and all the chaos. Um, I was, uh, probably not that strict, <laughs> you know, I, I played a lot of games with them in order for them to, um, learn like all the explorers or, uh, all the presidents and um, we would make up crazy songs that that they could refer back to in order to understand who discovered what. And I'd have them kind of create the song uh, or, or other on other subjects. Also, I didn't realize what I was doing. Um, I just knew that I needed to help them memorize uh, things for the test. So that was my way of, of doing it. And maybe, maybe there I, I became, you know, more of a performer, but, you know, I think the good teachers do that every day. So, uh, back in the old days, uh, my old days, um, you know, they just threw you in there and, um, without a lot of, you, you just kind of did whatever you wanted. Now they have lesson plans and, teacher meetings and parent meetings and all of these things that I did not, I did not have. 
Uh, so I was just kind of flying by the seat of my pants. <laughs> uh, well, how old were the kids you were teaching? They were fifth graders. Oh, okay. Um, the, my, I started out at kindergarten, uh, worked my way to fourth, and then I got up to fifth. <laughs> Very nice. You peaked at fifth. <laughs> at fifth grade, yes. Well, we obviously know how the story turned out. You did make it as an actress, but it does seem like a big leap of faith to take, leaving Texas for the big city with all the unknowns that entails. So how did you end up taking that leap? I was living with my best friend from, uh, we met in fifth grade. And so we were, uh, we were best friends. Both of us went to different colleges, uh, moved in together when we moved back to Dallas and she was a model and she went up to New York one summer um, and came back to Dallas and said, uh, we need to move, move there to New York. And I said, well, what the heck am I going to do there? I'm not going to teach, um, but took the took the chance. We moved there and I didn't know what I was going to do. She had a she had a she was with a modeling agency. So, you know, I went around to a couple of agencies. One took me as um, with the purpose of me doing kind of middle America type housewife products in commercials. And so that's what I started out doing. Again, I did not know what I was doing, but learned on the job and did a slew of TV commercials. And I was, you know, I was thrilled. I was like, you know, the YooHoo mom, uh, Maxwell House coffee, uh, deodorant tampons, uh, you know, all those kind of commercials that... Uh, you know, we're middle. I was a middle America housewife mm -hmm. trying to sell, you know, a broom. So that was fun. I loved it. And at one point I saw an ad in a, a bill that I received and it said, learn how to be a soap actress or so probably it's probably said soap actor. And all I was doing in the days that I wasn't working uh, or going on auditions, I was watching soap operas was One Life to Live, you know, it was the the big three on ABC. Uh, One Life to Live, All My Children, General Hospital. I guess All My Children was first in the lineup. And so I thought, oh, okay, um, let, me, let me go to this class. Um, so I went to the class. The man that was teaching the class was one of the directors on One Life to Live. And he at one point said the class was the, the six weeks was over. And he said, I think you should take another six weeks because I think I think you might have something. So I thought, well, is he telling me that because he wants, you know, six more weeks of tuition or, or should I do it? So anyway, wonderful man. Peter Miner is his name. And um, so I went back for another six weeks. And very soon after I finished that six weeks, um, an audition came up on uh, All My Children. Wish I could remember the character. Um, but of course, I met the uh, casting director then. And she remembered me. Pat, I didn't get the job on All My Children. She remembered me, passed me on to Mary Jo Slater at One Life to Live. And um, when Kathy Glass, who was playing Jenny, uh, was leaving the show, as you all probably know, you know, they, they, meaning the soap opera, like to replace people with people that looked similar to the person that was leaving. So maybe the audience wouldn't realize that their favorite character was leaving. <laughs> so I, um, you know, I, I thought, of course, I knew the character. I knew everybody involved in the storyline. I knew I knew all the characters. And um, so I knew, of course, that they wanted somebody to look similar to the actress, Kathy Glass. And she had this very distinct um, bowl haircut. It was um, Dorothy Hamill was a big, fabulous uh, Olympics ice skater. And uh, her hair would flip back and forth. And Kathy had that hair cut. And so I thought, well, I'm not going to get an 
on my acting ability, but I'm going to, I'm going to get my haircut like that. The haircut was a horrible haircut. Oh my gosh. It was a bowl haircut. And I have a rather large head, uh, but I, I looked, I looked like Kathy Glass. I looked like Jenny and um, I got the job and I, you know, I definitely got it on my haircut. <laughs> I auditioned with Michael Storm and, uh, you know, he was, he's such a giving actor. And, uh, you know, in TV commercials, I was acting alone, basically by myself with a, you know, with a right. vacuum, with, yeah, with a vacuum cleaner. <laughs> I was not acting with people. Um, and he was, I just thought he, he was listening. He was t- really talking to me. He was helping me. He was, I mean, I walked out of there and I went, Oh my God, what have I just experienced? Um, and you know, I, I got the job. Um, and so I was, you know, I was, it, 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 it was kind of sad. I knew these characters so well that when I went on my first day of work, I kept calling them their character names. Uh, very embarrassing. But uh, they they understood. I said, look, I'm just a fan. I'm just a fan. <laughs> uh, but, you know, everybody, you know, the rest is history. It was one of the best times of my life. Uh, I just, I can't say enough about it. it. I have, you know, long lasting friends from there. And it just was an extraordinary experience. Well, we have to dive deeper into it because we're soap opera digest, Bryn. Um, yes. The one thing that occurred to me as you were speaking is that it probably gave you a bit of a leg up that you knew all the names because we've heard before from actors that, you know, having 40 people's names roll off the tongue, especially if you come in as a recast with so many established relationships, isn't as easy as it sounds, you know, but you you had that. I knew everybody. Yeah. I knew everybody. I knew everybody's storyline. I yeah. knew... That's you amazing. know, who was married to who, who was <laughs> having an affair, who was dying, who was getting married. I mean, I knew it all because I'd watched it for years. So, um, yeah, I may, I, I think, yeah, maybe I did have a leg up. So do you remember when you first walked in those doors and started working alongside these people? Was there anyone that you were particularly starstruck by or intimidated by because of your fanship with them? I hate to say it, but, you know, everybody. Uh, I don't hate to say it, but yeah, everybody. I, I, I just I was a goofy fan. <laughs> you know, it was like it was like going to, um, you know, a fan convention. And, you know, I was in it. Um, I, I didn't, I knew the magnitude of getting the job, um, but I didn't, um, it, it was hard for me to take it all in because it was such a weird reality that I was now in, you know, to put yourself in a TV show around people that, you know, I had admired and um, I had watched. And I don't really, I, I think that, you know, I learned about acting by watching them before I even got on the show. Um, you know, the ones, of course, that we love the most uh, as viewers. This goes for anything, whether it's a movie or a nighttime TV show or anything, um, are the ones that we relate to, we feel close to, we feel sorry for, we root for. Um, and I thought at the time that the writing on One Life to Live, Gordon Russell was our head writer, was he just, you know, he loved actors and he loved writing and he loved, you know, coming down to the makeup room and sitting with us at the coffee pot and finding out about our own lives and or jokes or, you know, what happened with our parents or our brothers and sisters or, you know, and then several months later, a month later, you would find something that was similar to what you had just told Gordon in the in the show. So, you know, he he made it for a, he 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 created this just wonderful camaraderie between writer, actor um, and the overall show. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I guess Jackie Courtney was on the show at the time that I went on. And I remember, you know, we have 
we used to have dry blocking. I don't know whether they do that anymore in the morning at like 730. And everybody walks around with their scripts and they show us the blocking kind of in a, you know, in a room with a bunch of chairs. And I walked in front of Jackie Courtney to do my cross that I was told to do. And the everyone went, don't do that. (laughs) You're walking in front of you're walking in front of Jackie Courtney. I went, oh, God, I'm so sorry. (laughs) But, you know, that's how, um, you know, I would have I would have walked behind her. Not that she was asking to be, uh, but that's just the way it, 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 it was. I was supposed to do it that way. I mean, she didn't have she didn't have any qualms about it, but everybody else, you know, were they were joking with me, but also, you know, protecting me, helping me and giving reverence to her. Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, in your early days as Jenny, she was unhappily married to the cheating Brad played by Steve Fletcher. So what was Steve like to work with? I love Steve Fletcher. Um, I, we, we still are very much in touch. Uh, he lives in upstate New York. Um, he, um, you know, I just have a soft spot for Steve and he was one of my teachers. He came from an acting background. Um, he had done a lot of work before he came to One Life to Live. He had to replace Jameson Parker. Um, I think it was Jameson that came, he, he came in after Jameson and he's just a special man. Uh, you know, he would, along with Judith Light, the two of them would stay late with me, would come early, would go over my lines with me over and over and over again, would give me acting um, lessons, acting tips, um, maybe try it this way, let's try it this way. You know, in those days, we, we loved rehearsing. So in all of our off time, uh, when we weren't in dry or dress, we were we were trying to figure out how to make the scene the best it could possibly be. Uh, and Judith and Steve, um, that's just who they were, are. So they were, among other people, were my teachers. Um, and, you know, you just can't. I, I got so many wonderful things from those two, along with um, Michael Storm and Tony George and uh, Julia Montgomery, um, you know, she was she was so very young then. Uh, she played Samantha and but she had this um, joy and, you know, about her that was different from, you know, somebody my age. Um, there were just so many great actors at the time on that show. And then, of course, when the Buchanan's came in, you know, it was just, it was a, it was fun. (laughs) Well, one of the um, landmark storylines that you were part of on that show, and really, I think maybe the first truly epic baby switch sagas uh, to ever, you know, uh, take over a daytime show was the saga of Jenny giving birth to a stillborn daughter, being unaware of the child's sad fate because she was traumatized at the time, Bryn and Karen conspiring with Marco Dane, played by Gerald Anthony, to spare Jenny this great heartbreak by giving her a different baby who had actually been born to Katrina Carr. And it took years for the truth to come out and culminated with Jenny making the painful decision to surrender the child. And the story was such perfect soap opera that it's really served as a blueprint, you know, for uh, so many shows kind of copying that framework for, you know, uh, various uh, takes on it over the years, you know, up to the present. So what what do you most remember about the years of playing that storyline? You know, again, Gordon Russell and how at the time the network would allow us to have a four year storyline that, you know, went, you know, that we just got to live in and knowing that, you know, uh, that baby wasn't, wasn't Jenny's and um, figuring out with um, Katrina Carr. Uh, Nancy um, Snyder. Oh, fabulous actress. Um, and and Karen, uh, Judith Light, and uh, Brad, and Peter. Um, you know, it was it was so much fun to play. Uh, 
I, I was, you know, I was much more comfortable at that time. Uh, but I still, I, I wasn't sure how to play those scenes when I gave up Mary. Um, but, the, you know, I was helped along the way with, uh, again, the actors and the director. Um, and they, they, they guided me. And, um, you know, there, there was so much collaboration. There was no, I didn't ever feel any competition with anyone. And I, I think we were at that place of wanting the show to just kill every day. Uh, we really appreciated the audience. Um, and they were just, they were so loyal. And it was, you know, it was, it was fun to go in and create every day. <clears throat> it was a golden era, truly. Yeah. Yeah. So during that time period, you were married to Gerald Anthony, who passed away in 2004 and is remembered so fondly by viewers for the unique creativity he brought to his work. So what comes to mind when you think of him? Love him. Love, love, love him. Another one of my teachers, you know, I mean, Jerry, geez. He, he, I think he and Judith changed how soap opera actors are supposed to act. They were off the charts, those two, I thought. Um, Jerry was just a ball of creativity. And, you know, when the two of them, uh, Jerry and Judith were together, uh, you know, you knew that it was, it was going to be magic and they were going to bring something to the words that, you know, even, uh, the, the, the writers had not, um, seen. So Jerry was definitely one of my big teachers. We, we originally got together, you know, he was kind of, he and I were just so opposite, uh, you know, the, the pimp with the ex nun, you know, that, those characters, that old chestnut. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, he was like nobody I'd ever dated. Um, uh, nobody that I'd ever seen myself dating. Um, not my picture of who I was supposed to be dating but he's he was magnetic um and abc uh, at the time well i guess it's a they have it on now uh i think it was twenty thousand dollar pyramid uh one life to live put us together uh to be two contestants on twenty thousand dollar pyramid and you know i never said no to anything uh when if, if somebody from ABC asked me to do something. I mean, yeah, that's my boss and I'm going to do it. But I thought, oh no, I'm paired with Jerry. What, what is that going to mean? So, uh, you know, we hadn't, we didn't talk that much. We said hello and we were very cordial, but he was like, um, he was fire. And I kind of, uh, you know, moved away from it a little bit. Because uh, he always seemed so intense and working on his lines, and I didn't want to interrupt any of that. So he came up to me and he said, I understand we're doing pyramid together. I said, Yeah, yeah. He said, Okay, well, yeah, I'll go out and get the game, the board game, and uh, let's get together and play the game. And I went, Okay. <laughs> Thinking, What? We're going to practice for a game show? <laughs> But that's how intense he was. And, 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 and you know, and, and in, a, in a good way, you know, he wanted everything to be as perfect as it could be. And he was going to put all of himself into whatever was asked of him. So I went out and got the board game and he came over to my house and we started playing this board game. And, you know, he would give me a clue. Uh, I wish I could think of a good one, um, you know, like. Things a loaf of bread would say. What? Things a loaf of bread would say. Or that's the winner circle. Hold on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Yes, exactly. Um, I would say something totally, totally different than what he was trying to give me a clue for. We were coming from such opposite directions. And, you know, after I couldn't get the clue or I or he couldn't get the clue when I was giving the clues, we go, okay, uh, you know, what were you, he would, he would say, all right, let's, let's break this down. Let's analyze it. And I was thinking, oh my God, <laughs> how am I going to get him out of my apartment? I'm, I'm exhausted. <laughs> so 
We probably rehearsed $20,000 Pyramid 10 times. <laughs> and little by little by little, we, we could get it in one word. It was like we practiced and we understood each other's minds finally. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And, you know, of course, we won $20,000 in the winner's circle. Nice. It was, uh, it was just such an interesting way to figure out what you have in common and what you don't. And um, we, we figured it out. And, you know, after that, I was, I was in love. Um, so the years I had with Jerry, I, I am forever grateful um, you know, we, we were opposite, we were opposite and I appreciate his oppositeness of mine. And I know he appreciated my opposites. If nothing else, you and Jerry gave the readers of Soap Opera Digest some very pretty covers. Yes, you did. Oh, oh yes, covers. yes, yes, we did. Yeah, we had, that was fun. <laughs> that was fun. It was a great love affair. I mean, it was so, you know, we got married at the top of the World Trade Center. Oh, wow. Wow. And, uh, you know, it was it, it was incredible. It was it was it was just a great it was a great love affair. And it was weird to after we made the decision to split. Then, of course, we had to tell everyone on the show that we were splitting. And many of those people who who loved both of us said to us, it'll never work. Why are you doing this to both of us? We said, oh, yes, it will work. So then we had to go back to all of our friends and say, you know, we're, we're splitting. And OK, you were right. But let's not make it let's not allow it to affect anything here, which I feel that it never did. I don't know how other people felt. You know, it was just another another little wonderful um, part of a soap opera. We, I, we were living in a soap opera. Right. And <laughs> we were creating drama. And um, I, I, I felt that it was in a good way. I don't know. Uh, maybe, maybe not. I, maybe you're not supposed to date people that you work with uh, anymore. And, uh, but yet um, I didn't know that rule a long time ago. <laughs> so <laughs> um, I, I, I might've done it differently, but I, I couldn't, I couldn't resist Jerry Anthony. Um, so that's what happened anyway. Yeah. Joe Stewart brought us up to his, you know, executive office and sat us down and um, said, we're going to we're going to put you two, we're going to give you two a storyline together. This was after we were married and uh, we went, OK, great. You know, wow, uh, this is cool. So they wrote us a storyline. I, I don't remember what it was uh, or what it was about, but it was short lived. Joe Stewart, we get the call. Uh, Joe Stewart wants to see you. It had been on the air for a while, our storyline. We went up to Joe's office and Joe said, uh, we're going to we're going to split you two apart. And we were like, really? Why? What happened? He goes, no chemistry on camera. <laughs> and we went, what? Our chemistry? No chemistry <laughs> on camera? What are you talking about? We are on fire, the the two of us. And he goes, yeah, it's not working on camera. <laughs> so uh, we got split up. And then not too long after that, we got separated. I, you know, just too, too weird. 
Oh, goodness. Well, one uh, non-romantic love affair that truly stood the test of time from your one life to oh. life is this friendship with Judith Light, right? Oh, yeah. Um, so you became close friends at the time and remain close friends. Uh, what what comes to mind when you think about, uh, you know, that decades long association that you've had? It's as great now as it was then. You know, uh, Kathy Glass was Judith's roommate in the dressing room. So when she left, you know, I got to move into the same dressing room with Judith. And she's an only child. I'm an only child. I feel we look similar. Um, she's just, you know, there's nobody like Judith Light. She's just awesome. And she's that way. You know, everybody thinks that they are Judith's best friend because that's the way she treats people. Um, you know, I have learned so much from her about life and spirituality and uh, thinking through things and understanding people and loving. Um, it, it is an honor to be her friend. Uh, I love her husband, Robert Desiderio. My husband and Robert, my husband David and Robert, very, very close friends. So the four of us are a unit. And we adore getting together and just, you know, talking till 11 o'clock at night. And, you know, that's way past all of our bedtimes now. <laughs> but, um, you know, we, we do that at least twice a month uh, and have dinner and Judith and Robert cook. We always go to their house uh, because they love to cook. And um, it, it, it's just a, it just keeps getting better. Uh you know, to be around Judith and watch her work, you know, that was, I came on around the time that she, that uh, Karen was on trial. So I was always sitting in the jury and I got to be there for those, the, that, that jury, uh, that when she was on the, uh, on the witness stand, it was electric in that stage. Um, and she did it many times. Wow. Um, and, and it was, it was so, you know, I, I've watched it, uh, on, on YouTube or somewhere, maybe within the last couple of years. And I'm, I'm still in awe of it. I mean, talk about, I, 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 I mean, nobody had ever seen anything like that on a soap opera or maybe on a TV show that had that storyline. That was another long storyline. Um, that went over the years. So it was, you know, that was, that was a highlight. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Pretty neat. Um, now as Jenny's storyline continued, she had a short lived marriage to Peter played by Denny Albee, who was killed in a car accident and then found love with David Rinaldi played by the late great Michael Zaslow. So tell us about working with Michael. Oh, you know, another love of my life. Um, we, we, we became fast friends. I became very close to his family, his two daughters. Um, just one of those actors that, uh, you know, I, not many of those kind of people, I don't think, um, he was just something really, really special. Mm -hmm. Um, I had so much fun with him. We did. Uh, we had so much fun together. Uh, he was always up and enjoyed life and was happy and was, you know, a fabulous father and a husband. And um, we just, we clicked. We really, really clicked. I was thrilled that I got to be his soap opera wife and that I got to have the storyline with him. And um, uh, yeah, it was a love affair for me. Yeah, yeah. <sighs> so in 1986, after such an incredible and rich run, you exited One Life to Live. What prompted your decision? I felt like, well, if I I could stay here, I could I could stay here, and and I loved New York, and I could be perfectly happy being on the soap for as many years as they would have me. But I thought, um, you know, this was really the only character I'd ever done. So I thought, I wonder if I can do other characters. Uh, but the only way I'm going to figure that out is if I leave. 
So um, my plan was to leave and then stay in New York for a year and then just enjoy New York because I just loved it and then move to L.A. and see if, you know, I could I could make it. Mm -hmm. Well, it certainly started you on a very rich television career. And in 1992, you became a series regular on Matlock, playing Matlock's daughter, Leanne. So what stands out to you about that role and working opposite the legendary Andy Griffith? Oh, that was another show that I'd watched quite a bit or that, you know, I I don't know whether it was quite a bit, but I I, I definitely watched the show and certainly uh, watched um, Andy. Uh, You know, it was fun because I had been on a couple of other short-lived series and they had all... Let's see. Well, one had been in Hawaii with Richard Chamberlain. So I got to move there and live there. That was wonderful. And one had been uh, with James Brolin, which we shot down in San Diego. That was a year short. You know, these were both two uh, shows that only lasted a season. Well, I think the James Brolin show lasted another season after I left. They recast the whole cast. Um, except for James. And then to get, um, I had done a guest spot on Matlock and then as a murderer, something. And then they asked me to come back and play his daughter. Uh, But they were going to shoot it in Wilmington, North Carolina. So, uh, you know, I was, I was interested, you know, very interested in that. And you know, living, I, I liked the fact of living, you know, somewhere else and, and doing it. So that, that was fun. And I stayed for two years and um, I, I was ready to, you know, move on to something else. Mm-hmm. Well, in the mid nineties, you actually did pop back in to our world and did a little stint on General Hospital that saw you working opposite Anthony Geary as Luke. What do you remember about that uh, couple of days of work there? I was a wreck. I was, you know, it was so unfamiliar to me uh, because I'd been gone so long and I didn't, I didn't understand the pace of it or the, I was, I was a fish out of water. I mean, and Anthony Geary, I got to do scenes with him. I was terrible. (laughs) I was terrible. Uh, You know, and he, what couldn't have been more of a, you know, wonderful actor to be opposite Um, but I was, I was a wreck. Mm -hmm. I think it was only, I think it might've been only three days. Thank God. Um, I don't know. You know, I, I, it was hard for me. I think, I think that was when the schedule, uh, what was so different than what our schedule was. And we ran things all the time. Well, you know, that's just not the way they operated anymore. So to, I don't think I ever ran it with Anthony until, uh, you know, the camera um, came on. Uh, So I was and not because of him or anything. That's just, you know, they were moving. And I was I don't know how many years older than I had been on One Life to Live. So I that's a that's a uh, learned process. Uh, That's a, you know, a thing in your brain that it, it, it's learned how to how to memorize like that, I think. Um, and, you know, they just they just do it. Mm-hmm. Um, well, Brent, the great news is the show is just about to celebrate its 60th birthday. So you did it no harm. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank God. <laughs> um, but you did pop up on a host of other series in the movie Blue Jasmine. You were on one of my favorite shows, Suits. But these days, you're also pivoting into writing. And I want to talk about this amazing show that you've written called Let Me In. And I want you to tell the story of your inspiration for the piece because it's incredibly moving. When I was living in New York and I'd just gotten on One Life to Live, hadn't been on it too long, and I was living with my 10-year-old or, you know, I think we were 10 when we met, best friend who I moved from Texas to New York with, um, she died in a car accident, uh, which, of course, was devastating. Um, Soap opera got me through all those people on the soap opera. And having having a job um, at the time, uh, so the, 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 as, as everybody that has gone through a death of a of a loved one, 
um, goes through grief differently. We're all so different in how we accept or uh, reject or uh, cover grief. So I don't know how long I've had this play in my head, but, um, you know, she she is a huge still uh, my girlfriend, still a huge part of my life. I, you know, I've got her pictures everywhere, talk to her all the time, uh, have great memories. Um, so I started um, taking writing classes, oh, 10, 15 years ago, and learned about writing. And I've started doing some uh, short films uh, that I wrote based on experience that I had had called The Worst Day and started writing poetry and different, you know, different things. And then I thought, let me let me write this play I have in my head about my girlfriend's death and um, how it's a three character play. I think each character is a part of me and how I dealt with the death and continue to deal with it. Um, the, she was driving in a car, uh, in a convertible with her. He wasn't a, a fiance at the time, but he was going to be, uh, you know, I've, I, I, I've pushed the facts a little bit, but basically, but a lot of it is, is based on truth. Um, she didn't ever see Beljon, flew out of the car. He lived and it's about the fiance and the best friend coming together to deal with their rock leaving the planet. Uh, both of them very close to the person that died. Um, and then a police officer comes in to the play to you know, kind of help them through the day because they're trying to get to the funeral and they really don't want to go. Uh, so it's a comedy, a darkish <laughs> comedy. Um, and I, uh, we open next weekend. Um, and I think it's, we had a great dress rehearsal last night and I must say, I think it's good. <laughs> so, uh, it, it's been great for me because it's just been reliving all that time we were together and all that love that we had and celebrating her life. You know, I hope other people, when they come to see it, they see part of themselves and how they deal with grief and um, that it can be, you know, some good medicine to we all have to get through this world and lose people along the way, whether it's to COVID or cancer or automobile accidents or shotguns or, uh, you know, so it is it's just part of life and we're all in it together. Uh, we, we all have to deal with it. So that's where I'm coming from in the writing. Mm -hmm. Well, it's called Let Me In and it's running. Uh, it'll be running through April 2nd on Saturdays and Sundays at Theater 68 Arts Complex in North Hollywood. And one of the stars of it is one of my favorites from Lost, Jorge Garcia. Oh. Um, so how did he get involved and what was it like for you to see him uh, bring in your words to life? Jorge and I have been in an acting class for many years. And, you know, I, I've always, his work is incredible in class and anywhere, you know, of course, where we've seen him on television. Um, he's such a thoughtful actor. He really, you can see him using his brain to figure out, you know, how to approach a, a line or a thought. He never says anything that is not from a place of truth. And he is so damn funny that, you know, I've seen the play so many times and it's laugh out loud, Jorge. He just touches this place that you, 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 he's brought something to this character that I never imagined. Um, and the other two actors, uh, Brian McKinley and Rachel Myers, they were also in a class that we were all in together. So we've all known each other. We're this unit and we have a shorthand with each other. And, you know, I, I, this is my first time directing a play. So I was smart enough to know, well, I'm going to get the best actors because whatever they do uh, is going to 
enhance my words. Um, and I think, you know, you, you root for all three of the characters. They come from a different perspective about death and uh, dealing with death. And um, Jorge Garcia, wow. He's also getting ready to do a new show called How to Be a Bookie with Chuck Lorre. And uh, that, I'm sure that's going to be uh, fabulous. Um, so to have him, you know, when I ask him to do it, I, I dreamt that he would say yes, but I was, when he said yes, I had to pull over and I just had to hang up the phone with him and have a good cry because I was so honored that he decided to do this play, um, that I was just overjoyed (laughs) and, you know, the tears came. So thank you to all three of them, but there is a, there is a special, um, special person in Jorge Garcia. Mm-hmm. Well, again, we want to make sure everyone listening has the opportunity to go. It is at the theater that is an RE 68 arts complex.com where you can look for tickets. They are a very nice price at $35 and <laughs> uh, running through April 2nd. Um, but you are not just writing. You are also still acting. You filmed a role in the upcoming TV remake, remake of fatal attraction. So, um, you know, could you ever see yourself doing another soap? Wow. Uh, yes, absolutely. I would, um, I would really hope that I could get into the schedule of learning the words and doing it. You know, when I do a role um, on, you know, say Fatal Attraction or Suits, they are um, both of those shows very specific about saying, you know, what's written on the page. Some people are, are less. Um, so you want to get you want to get everything right. Now, I don't know how that is on soaps anymore, but I, I did my share of ad living on One Life to Live. I think we all kind of did. Um, maybe me more than others, but um, probably not more than Jerry. Uh, <laughs> but um, I love the soap opera life. I, I I love it. So I I would really hope that I could uh, do it justice. Mm-hmm. Well, Bryn, our time with you is sadly coming to an end. But before no. we let you go, I know I don't want to. Uh, before we let you go, you know when you think back on the the Bryn Thayer of 1978, who had this opportunity to take over this role for Kathy Glass, you know how, how would you say that? that landing that first big television role and that particular uh, time, that particular cast, that particular character changed your life. Oh, so fortunate, lucky. I was in the right place at the right time. Um, You know, the people, the people make it and made it and uh, continue to. Uh, I I would have never gone down the path, you know, and then I would have missed out on so many things. So I, I encourage people to go down whatever path is is you you see in front of you and you maybe hesitate a bit, but that path takes you and just, oh, you know, you go to many other places um, if you don't hesitate. So good advice. Yeah. Good advice. Well, we thank you for all your time and for sharing all your stories, which I loved hearing again. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Even better the second time. Um, but again, everyone, let me in. Um, playing till April 2nd and um, go see it because the story just sounds so wonderful. And bring me thank you for everything. Thank you. I had a great time. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you to Bryn Thayer for being our guest. If you like this podcast, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Be sure to pick up a new issue on sale now and come back next week for another podcast.